Hey, Truly Universal listeners, Rens here, co-founder of Urban Picks. And before we dive into this week's episode, wanted to thank all of you for tuning in and supporting our podcast. What started off as a fun way for a few of us to nerd out on our favorite fictional worlds during this difficult time has turned into a weekly adventure of laughs, banter, sass, and the occasional thought-provoking idea. With that said, I am truly excited to announce that this Friday, we will be launching a new addition to the Urban Picks family, a podcast called Fam and Fed, which will literally and figuratively explore the intimate connection between food and faith. It's going to be run by my good friend, Father Raj, who's been a guest on previous TU episodes, and the amazing, awesome Cece, who's a household name for Northern California young adults. So be on the lookout on our website, urbanpicks.com, Instagram, and Twitter for more information. With that, I'll be handing it off to the lovely, velvety-voiced Ian to kick things off on this week's Truly Universal. In Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, alchemy is the most practiced science in this universe, allowing people to reformulate matter through the knowledge of its chemical makeup. Two brothers, Edward and Alphonse Elric, travel as itinerant alchemists to atone for their failure to resurrect their deceased mother using a forbidden technique called human transmutation. Determined to get their bodies back, they set off on a journey in search for the Philosopher's Stone only to discover the dark secrets of alchemy. But how does a Catholic deal with the manipulation of the laws of nature in the world of alchemy? How did St. Thomas Aquinas, Albertus Magnus, and Friar Roger Bacon deal with the pursuit of truth through their observations of nature? Today, we explore faith and science in the world of the alchemists. This is Truly Universal. Welcome to Truly Universal, the podcast where we discuss all things Catholic in another universe. Welcome, everyone, to the Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood universe. My name is Ian. I'm here with uh, Matt and Mark, as well as Meg, to discuss the universe of the Elric Brothers and alchemy. Uh, specifically, we're going to look at the Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood anime, which is based up more closely to the manga um, by Arakawa. And it's just a wonderful piece of um, literature and a wonderful piece of art, the whole thing. Um, and so really quick, before we kind of dive right into it, uh, could anyone, would anyone like to tell us a little bit about the background of that world or that universe a bit more? I mean, we had it in the intro, but just a few more specific things. Can we go with uh, maybe Mark, Matt, if you could kind of explain a little bit about what is alchemy and how does it work? and. Well, alchemy in uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is uh, treated like a science. It's like basically like magic, but like there's a scientific component to it where there has to be one of the uh, basic principles in the show is the law of equivalent exchange. The idea that uh, in order to gain something, uh, something of equal value must be lost. So like basically any sort of magical transmutations that occur in the show are like a balanced chemical equation no i mean i think i think back to yeah whenever you whatever energy is put in and whatever material you use you can't make more of said material or destroy that material yeah yeah um i believe like in the first episode there was like a scene that's just very quintessential of full metal alchemist where uh uh alphonse elric uh one of the two brothers uh transmutes a radio out of the components needed to like he gathers some like metal and like plastic and wood and creates a radio by drawing a circle on the ground and that's basically how this universe works you draw a circle and then magical things happen but they're magical sciencey things that happen yeah they they study it like a really like you know there's three components to alchemy for them like one comprehension understanding like the forces at play between molecules that kind of thing then there's also um, composition, right, where you kind of um, recompose matter. And there's like decomposition, where um, yes. you can break it into parts. So they, they treat it very scientifically in our world. 
uh, alchemy was kind of like the pseudoscience that was the birth of chemistry. So I mean, shout out to my days working in chemistry at UC Berkeley a little bit. Uh, I too was an alchemist for a little bit in a little brotherhood of alchemists. Um, but we won't talk about that. I don't have want to a talk frat? About that. You, you wasn't a chem frat? Stop it. Stop it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's we're not going to go into that. Oh, with the law of equivalent exchange, right? They 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 committed what we called the um, the taboo of alchemy, right? Human transmutation. Could you give us a little background on that, Meg? So human transmutation is a big taboo because, like we talked about, there's there's this equivalent exchange. Like what you gain is like is is what you give up in a sense, right? Like so everything has to give as much as it takes. Um, whatever you create can't be out of nothing. Right. So you could think about like the composition of a body that's this much hydrogen, it's this much carbon, it's this much lime, Phosphor- and phosphorus, stuff like that. Phosphorus, you know, all that yeah. stuff. Composition of the physical body, but you can't buy the ingredients to a soul at a grocery store or at a Home Depot or whatever, right? And so within the law of equivalent exchange, like you can't just Bring, you can't bring a person back from life. You can't create a human being using alchemy because there is no ingredients for a soul that you can buy. Um, and so it, it just doesn't work. And so that's why it's a big taboo because um, in order to, to, to go through the transmutation, it would take away something from you uh, because there really is no price for a human soul. Yeah. To those uninformed who are listening to this podcast, uh, in Full Metal Alchemist, one of the biggest uh, plot points is, or like, the thing that drives the plot is that the Elric brothers are children who are very interested in alchemy. Basically, they learn it from their their father, their father who isn't around, but their mother encourages them to kind of bond with their father by studying the things that he studies. And by learning alchemy, they become more engrossed in it. And eventually, their mother becomes ill, and then she passes away. And left with no other family but each other the brothers think oh because we know so much about alchemy we can bring back our mother by getting the components that meg described to bring back a person from the dead and that is human transportation and it's not even just like a, a the naive choice of children like you find out that there's adults that do it too like there's someone who had a, a miscarriage and tries to bring back their 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 own child and in return they become infertile. And like the big plot point with the Elric brothers is that uh, Al loses his body, essentially. And then Ed loses an arm and a leg um, and has to has to move Al's body into this giant humanoid adult armor as like an 11-year-old child. <laughs> like- Which makes some pretty uh, funny plot points because throughout the series... Everyone thinks that Alphonse is the full metal alchemist. My favorite running gag in the entire series. Because <laughs> he's literally full metals. Fully metal. Yeah, if you look at know, the box yeah. art of anything for the show, you'll see like one short blonde kid and then a giant suit of armor. I think you would think the suit of armor is the full metal alchemist, but he's not. And the older brother, but it's not. <laughs> and that just start, that starts off in like episode one. They're already everyone's mistaking him. Um so when they lose parts of their body, Alphonse losing his whole body, they're driven on a quest to try to find out ways to get their body back, and they want to stumble across this thing called the Philosopher's Stone. But to to do this, to do this research, they join the military. Okay, alchemists, a lot of the times, their research is used for war. Okay, and so um, as alchemists, you you kind of they call them their nickname for them is the dogs of the military, and they use their alchemy, their science, their knowledge. Um, to gain an advantage in battle. Um, and so each of those guys, um, what they do is like a, an alchemist, um, they're known for a specialty. They can do all kinds of alchemy, but they can specialize in certain things. So you have one that specializes in fire alchemy. Like he just, he, is, he essentially can make the air around you burn. Uh, there's another I'm useless in rain. He's useless in the rain. Which <laughs> he goes against like uh, this water alchemist, freezing and steam and all that stuff. There's this other guy who really buff. Um, we all know Armstrong. Alex Louise Armstrong, whose muscles have been passed down from the Armstrong family for generations. Yeah, absolutely. His, <laughs> yes. The 
perfect body and perfect alchemy, he would, he would probably say about himself. So everyone has like a nickname, you know, so Flame Alchemist, Full Metal Alchemist. I mean, Ed's thing is manipulating metal. So really quick, just, just for fun, I mean, if you yourself were a state alchemist, right, and they get all these perks, they get like a stipend, they can research, what would your specialty be and what would your code name be? What would your rank be? Because you would be an officer in the military. What kind of alchemy would you be in charge of? I'd like to be the Gundam alchemist where I could turn anything into um, <laughs> plastic Gundams, but they're like, they're, they're like the, the miniatures that you can get in like the, the, those little stores, but they're fully functioning and they're life size. So I could travel around and then um, fly pilot them like they were in the anime and then shoot around and go into space and stuff. Okay. So we're combining animes here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think, I think the kind of alchemist that I would be, I think I would be called the uh, phase shift alchemist. Oh boy. Because <laughs> what I would do is I can't, I think I would retake from the, uh, from a show that has a very similar theme and tone is uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. And uh, waterbenders, they constantly fight by changing water from liquid state to solid state to gaseous state so i think that's the kind of alchemist i would basically take water and then move it through its phases but why not be the water alchemist then that's boring <laughs> the water phase, the wa- phase shift <laughs> throw back again to chemistry let's go all right what do we got meg all right so i would be called the moody foodie alchemist and i would be i would like transmutate food and stuff so that I could like skip the prep part and it just goes, it just turns into the food that I want. But like low key, like I'm just like, oh, I'm just like the, I'm just like the state alchemist chef, right? But low key, I'm a water alchemist and I could, I could like tear the blood out of you and I'm just, yeah. When I'm moody, that's, that's the threat. <laughs> we, we are, com- yeah, all right. Remember, Avatar The Last Airbender into this, we will have an episode on that sometimes. Alchemy and cooking just sounds like, it sounds like baking. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Baking? Essentially. Essentially. Because baking is an alchemy. It is. It's just a... Oh man. Transmutation circles for that. I would love to be I think I would just be Earth Wind and Fire. <laughs> Earth, wind, and... I mean this it would just be combinations of those. I know that I'm combining three things, but really it's music, guys. I love music. <laughs> But you have to sing, be, you have to sing an Earth, Wind, and Fire song every yeah. time. Instead yes. of my transmutation circles, when when they activate, you just hear funk music. <laughs> you hear funk music. <laughs> that like, would be awesome. Guitar and brass. It's like, what the? Oh, maybe the funk alchemist is here. And then <laughs> the <funk> <laughs> that would be. Disco alchemist. What so, if you're like a Lego alchemist? Like. Like, I oh, like the master really builders from the Lego oh, universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> th- that's what an alchemist is. They rebuild and they deconstruct matter. So it would be like Greed's ultimate shield because nothing is more indestructible than a Lego. So <laughs> and nothing hurts more than stepping on a Lego. Exactly. <laughs> so it's good for offense and defense, both a shield and a spear. And the laws of equivalent exchange always apply because you always have to have the same number of bricks every time. If I lose a break, it's just, it's all bad. It's all bad. Uh, kind of moving on from that, uh, just as a little character analysis, like who, who are our favorite characters and why? Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> you had to move your mic closer to your mouth for that. <laughs> I love how, at least in the sub, I love how he says like the, Elrikudai. like he's just, he's just so manly. He's like, <laughs> I love the little curl right above his eyes that's the only hair on his head but he's like join me in this manly embrace <laughs> mark matt what do you how about you guys i'm quite partial to ed just because i feel for his shortness <laughs> <laughs> i mean every time the little pipsqueak gets called short he like bursts into anger and then it's just so like hubris as well as sad that he just like complains all the time but then people are just like pushing him down like while he's complaining um i, I so do is that, also is that how to make you angry mark is maybe, maybe is it because little? he's also an older brother yes that's also why the older brother who feel has 
a lot of the responsibility. His his arm and his leg kind of don't always work all the time because they're they're not real. Does that make me Alphonse? No, Alphonse is too pure for. No, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, but you're taller. Only slightly. Pudigerakudai. <laughs> My favorite character, obviously, is like the fan favorite pick of the entire series, Black Hayate. Black Hayate oh, yeah. is the best yes. character oh, in the entire series. I I don't even need to explain it. I mean, for those unfamiliar who are just joining us and have not seen the show, why why are you listening? But also watch uh, Full Metal Alchemist. And if you're joining just because you like to hear the sound of Ian's voice, uh, continue listening. But oh, well, Black Hayate right. is is a pupper. <laughs> He's this black military dog. Is he? Is he? I don't know, even know what kind of dog he is. Is he like? I think a, he's a Shiba. Is, this, he's is like a black a Shiba, Shiba or a black husky. Shiba or like a? Which is odd Shiba to keep for a military. Husky. Yeah, he's not a very <laughs> practical military dog, but he's a dog adopted by military officers. <laughs> but, yes. The Riza Hawkeye ends up taking care of it, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, if I had to pick a real character, I think I would actually pick. Alphonse, which is not at all uh, influenced by my brother's answer. Yeah. I just find Alphonse so like pure and so like I don't know, innocent and not literally like naive, but he's just like I don't know. He has a lot of empathy towards people, and that's something I identify with. And one of the things that I really love about him is like he's so pure. Like basically, one of his goals from getting his body back after he loses his body because of the human transmutation, he loses his body. And one of the things that he wants to do by getting a body back is he just wants to eat like pie or like eat. Like, yeah, he has the running list. He has a notebook. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, things I'm gonna eat when I get my body back. <laughs> and that guy has his priorities straight. Yes. I mean, is that it's really all you should care about at 14 years old? Well, yes, getting my body back. <laughs> Good lord, I I'm partial to um, King Bradley, the Fuhrer King Bradley, because um, I love the trope of like the super old guy in anime. Like he looks old and like, oh, what's he gonna do? Guy takes down a tank by himself. He cuts <laughs> the tank shell in half with a sword. And the people behind him, he doesn't care about them. You just hear screams. You hear that the the stock Wilhelm scream, like ah, um, as the barrels through. He he destroys a tank. He can fight so many people at once. If he was at his prime, they would never have won. It would have been insane. Oh, remember the fight when he's fighting Scar? His sword breaks, and he grabs it with his teeth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just starts sliding yeah. away. He, he only had his arms decomposed off using alchemy. And so, yeah, the sword breaks. He grabs it with his teeth and stabs Scar in the shoulder. Like, what more? It's so good. He's fantastic. Um, and his ultimate eye, where he can see the perfect path to take whenever he needs to counter or run. Like, running up falling debris after an assassination attempt. What? I've used that in plenty of D&D scenario. Thankfully, our DM lets us use it. But... Um, <laughs> Pretty, pretty interesting. check. Yeah. <laughs> no, check. I have an ultimate eye. <laughs> um, I think on a serious note, though, Winry. Winry is probably my favorite because she, like, shows a lot of, like, female power. She shows a lot of empathy. She shows, like, a she's, like, that person that cares and, like, asks the questions that the audience is asking. Like, why do you keep fighting? Like, reminding us, the audience, that Ed and Al are still kids, too. Like, and so... I always like their dynamic and I love what she brings. She brings this like down to earthness, this humanness to this story where it's like you could get really caught up in like the action and the chaos. And she brings back this sense of normalcy, like to the brothers and to the audience. I think with Full Alchemist Brotherhood, it's, it's such a well-rounded series. There's action, there's, there's tragic moments, there's the comedy is intense um, and it hits on so many different levels. Um, really, what what are some of your favorite moments, either comedic or tear jerking, or just plain old like, whoa, what what just happened? Edward, starting there. <laughs> so, uh, but that's the uh, first thing everyone thinks of, right? If you've watched the entire Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood series, like you, the first episode you think of when you think tears is that episode. <laughs> so background. 
uh, Show Tucker is trying to renew his state alchemist license, and he's trying to show off this project of creating chimeras as the big thing to get his state alchemist license renewed. The people from the military come in to see what he's created, but he has nothing. And uh, Edward and Alphonse go in to try to learn from him about alchemy since he's such a well-rounded expert. We see scenes of his daughter and his dog and just how sweet Alexander. they are. Alexander! I'm just an expert on all the dog's names. <laughs> What's the daughter's name again? Nina! <laughs> Nina! <laughs> you see, I remembered Alexander, but oh. not Nina. <laughs> yes. So Nina and Alexander, you feel for them. You, you think like, oh, they're so adorable. Nothing bad can ever happen to them. Edward and Alphonse uh, go away for a bit, and then they return to find Show Tucker showing off his chimera. And they're amazed, like, how did you create this? And then the, the chimera is just, like, traumatized and just, like, barely trying to say words. And The chimera's hear... in actually a lot of pain and yes. makes it known that it's in pain. Yes, and you can see him trying, struggling to say Edward, Edward, or Edward, Edward. <laughs> they realized through the the law of equivalent stage, it couldn't have been just from anything. It was his daughter and his dog used as the components to create that chimera, and they're just disgusted and horrified after they find out that that was the case. And the thing was, like, chimeras don't, they're not normally able to talk, and his, like, research and his thesis was trying to get a chimera that talks and can make decisions, and then you find out that his first run was using his wife, right? Like... Yeah. His Even wife and that. another dog or something. Yeah. Oh. Presumably another family dog. So that's why one of my favorite Father's Day cards I've ever seen has show Tucker on it. Oh. <laughs> His daughter and, oh. and the dog. Oh, so bad. Uh, what else? What else? I think the, te- the, teacher, the teacher's background story. Oh, so um, yeah, Ed, Ed and Alphonse have a master, a teacher, oh, yeah. who taught them alchemy. Um, so yeah, go ahead and go into that a bit, Meg. Uh, Ed and Al, since their dad's not around and the mom's not an alchemist and there wasn't really like, they live in a small town, so there wasn't other alchemists. And so they found a teacher who like taught them alchemy, but also taught them how to fight at like 10. Right. And so (laughs) this, this teacher, um, can do alchemy without a transmutation circle. So every alchemist, they need to have some kind of transmutation circle on them. Like one of the state alchemists has um, has a glove with a circle on it so that he can ignite fires and stuff like that. Um, but there are certain alchemists that don't need to create a transmutation circle in order to go with that process. Uh, and as you watch the show, you find out um, the dark reason why that is so. Ed and Al, they can they don't need a transmutation circle because um, they uh, committed the taboo. And then you find out that the teacher, their teacher, their master also does not need a transmutation circle because she also committed the taboo at some point in life. And so it's just like a, a, a struggle of like seeing her loss of, of being able to be a mother it's one of those things because like she's like a really hard shelled person like she's like really rigid and like really like strict with them and like um hard love like tough love um and then you find out this like very 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 sad part of her life this deep desire to be a mother and how that was like stripped from her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh at least for me the funeral of um so the flame alchemist, uh, he wants his goal is to kind of be the top man in charge. He wants to be the Fuhrer, and his little system is almost almost like a pyramid scheme. If I take care of the few people underneath me, and they take care of the people underneath them, eventually we can take care of the nation. Um, very strong idealist, and his best friend, Maze Hughes, um, he gets killed by one of the several antagonists, um we call them they call them the homunculi yeah which we'll talk about them later like they're in a whole interesting set of things but you really feel for mace hughes because like early on you you see him with his family with his wife how much he loves his daughter um and he gets super like he does like a lot like cuddly talk with them and um he's also very reliable and then like at at the funeral the the daughter alicia you just she starts saying like things like Mom, why are they putting Dad in the ground? Like, what? 
He's what's like, he, he doing? Promised he's going to be back, right? Early. Like, what's happening? What's ha- Just seeing like through the eyes of a child. Yeah, yeah. The the idea of seeing death again through the eyes of a child. Um, and then and, you know Colonel Mustang, he's like crying, and reads the Hawkeye's is attaché, and he's like, and he says to her, "Oh, too bad. It's it's raining. And it's not raining. It's like a sunny day." <laughs> and you know, because in the rain, no one can see you cry. And so she says, "Ah, oh, yes, it is raining." Um, it was just a tragic, sad moment that although there's a lot of loss, a lot of death in this series, um, and they handle it really well, um, really showing like the value of life. Just to, just to kind of round it out, because we did a lot of like sad things. Anything funny? Anything particular? Like we mentioned earlier about the running joke of, oh, Ed's short. And he gets so pissed off about it. But what other kind of running things do we like to see that are um, like you bring a smile to our faces? Armstrong randomly being shirtless, like, like, I, like you didn't need to take your clothes off. <laughs> Apparently, Arakawa has a fondness for big manly men with muscles because there's Izumi's husband who is like this very Ron Swanson like he's manly but he's also outdoorsy and he's and, a butcher and then he's a butcher yeah. and then there's uh, Armstrong who is this very elegant very smug kind of muscly dude but going back to what uh, Ian was talking about with uh with Maze Hughes. I think my favorite running gag of the series, and I guess it's not as prevalent in the manga or like uh, Brotherhood, but it's more prevalent in the 2003 adaptation of Full Metal Alchemist, is that the, the running gag of Maze Hughes showing pictures of his child <laughs> to people, whatever, because he's like, okay, he's like one of the people in the military and stuff, but like it, I don't know, it humanizes the idea that, like, you know, the people who are part of the state alchemists or people who are dogs in the military are still, like, people like you and I. Like, they have families, they have wives, they have kids, they have pets or whatever. It becomes, <laughs> sorry, I'm bringing it back to the heart, this is the heartbreaking, but, like, it's that much more impactful when Maze Hughes dies in the series because you see how much of an impact he is to his family, but also to Roy Mustang and like the future he wants to create. Yeah, when I first watched Full Metal, I got really annoyed about like, come on, stop talking about your daughter. You're showing pictures like every time you're on screen. And then when it happened, when he died, it's like, oh, dang. Dang, no, show me more pictures. <laughs> show me more pictures. I I enjoy when they redraw... Um, Alphonse, like, because he's so detailed, the armor's so detailed, and then when he's like being emotional, they make it look super simple, like with like wide eyes, like oh, what's happening? It's like a round shape with like a little like peg, like a little horn. (laughs) That's armor. There was one scene where Winry gets mad at Al for like saying something stupid and like knocks the soul out of him. So Alphonse grabs his soul. It's like, I got your soul. We just need to put it in another suit of armor. (laughs) (laughs) Does it actually happen? It's not literal, but it's. Speaking of Winry, I I love the proposal. The. In the end, when Ed tries to propose to oh, Winry, yeah, yeah. he successfully does, but he's like, he's like, I'll give you half of my life. You, you give me half of your life. Equivalent exchange. <laughs> and she's just like, <laughs> like, you alchemists are useless. Like, like I'll, I'll give you my whole life. And then she gets embarrassed and she was like, or um, 75%, 85%. Does that sound right? <laughs> <laughs> she backtracks. I think some of my favorite comedic moments are between Ed and Winry. I think there was another one that's a lot simpler, but it's just like she goes to visit uh, Edward after he fights, I forget who, but he's like in the hospital and he's all banged up. And oh, was then, that Kimberly? Is that when he fights Kimberly or when he fights. Uh, what do you call it? The prisoner dude? I don't know which one it is. But, one of those. But uh, anyway, so he comes, he's in the hospital and he's like recovering. And then she sees that he hasn't drinking his milk off what the uh, doctors and nurses have brought to him. And they come from like countryside and like, you know, like farm people. And they're just like, if you don't drink your milk, you're going to be so and short she always for the rest of your life. It's like, you're so short because you don't drink your milk. 
<laughs> Anytime Roy Mustang is in rain, like one of the first poli- like big police oh, yeah. chase, like chases where they're trying to catch someone and it's raining and it's like he's trying to snap and nothing comes. And then guy just like pushes him aside, he like feels he's useless useless. in rain. <laughs> yeah, and then she pulls out two pistols and then just like goes ham. Man, it's it's just such a good series. Again, we cannot. We've basically spoiled a whole bunch of crap already, but we cannot it's still still watch it. Please watch it. Um, all right, let's just kind of get into the meat of this thing, right? Let's tie it, these things, these themes into like a Catholic understanding. Um, what themes do you see uh, from the series? And let's see what we can tease out of this. Definitely the obvious one is the, like the pro-life theme that's all through it. Like, I, I, I don't think that the author was like, we're going to make a pro-life anime. But it's like, that's the theme you see is like being pro uh, uh, like natural way of life or like pro like natural end to life too. And, and this this idea or this fact that souls people like that's that's priceless. That there, there's there's nothing that you can exchange for it. Like no person can play God and decide um like the value or of a life or when a life can end like regardless of their powers regardless if they have the philosopher's stone or not yeah going into what or expanding upon what meg is talking about is that uh one of the biggest uh aspects of the show i we're spoiling pretty much everything for you so but go ahead and watch it still <laughs> is that uh since ed and al lost their bodies through doing human transmutation and then by doing committing the taboo, they are confronted with truth, which is the god figure of this universe, and basically they are both punished in some way for basically trying to for their hubris and for their pride for trying to be like God. And uh, one of the ways that they try to regain their bodies and for Ed his limbs is to create a philosopher's stone, and they discover in their journeys of seeking knowledge about the Philosopher's Stone, which is a a vessel for being able to bypass the law of equivalent exchange when doing alchemy, is they learned that in order to create a Philosopher's Stone, you need to use human souls to power the stone. And it's not just one human soul, it's like approximately over 500,000 souls to to power the Philosopher's Stone. And there's this whole like moral dilemma that is prevalent throughout the series is that they encounter uh, the antagonists who are the homunculi who use the uh, Philosopher's Stone for their own interests and for their own destruction of Amestris. But also like they encounter other people who use the Philosopher's Stone for selfish reasons. And then after even learning how to create it, they constantly wrestle with the morality of is it right to use this knowing what is put into it? Yeah, it kind of brings up that idea of, um, you know, it's never right to use a human for an end. Uh, that kind of personalist kind of philosophy. Immanuel um, Kant? Yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. People should be an end, <laughs> not a means. Not, I'm not a big fan of him, but hey. <laughs> you know, a broken clock is, is right twice a day. Uh, <laughs> That's not, I'm not going to go much further. Only our cheaty Anagonia is crying. (laughs) (laughs) I think also um, what's fascinating with that, the the homunculi are artificial humans, right? They are made up of philosopher's stones. They are made up of all these, of soul energy. It's very hard to kill a homunculus um, because they just keep using the energy of the stone inside them to heal. And so, and it's the, the homunculi, they're so obviously symbolic because there's seven of them and they each one represents a deadly sin okay you we all know our deadly sins name them off gluttony lust envy pride wrath greed yeah mm-hmm sloth sloth slow we see anything i think that's it i think four five six seven yeah wrath you forgot yeah, you right. your boy Wrath. Wrath. My, my boy Wrath, yeah. <laughs> did I not say Wrath? Pride. <laughs> I said Wrath and Pride, I believe. Oh, yeah, you did. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah. We so can't good. count. Good. So um, they were, in a sense, the children of the main antagonist called Father, okay? Because he wanted to purify himself of his sins, so he, he kind of ejected them from himself. 
there's there's a lot of there's a lot of levels, guys. There's a lot of levels in this, in this thing. It's so so even if we spoil things, it's still like you still need to watch it because You're like, it doesn't what? make sense unless you watch it. I think getting into that, I think one of the uh, big kind of themes that I feel like I get from Fullmetal Alchemist is like this idea that single-minded adherence to one kind of basis for knowledge is like unhealthy or like it's not the best way to seek truth. Because I feel like, okay, so there was the scenes at the beginning of the series, which genuinely, like when I first started watching the series as a Catholic, it made me uncomfortable, is like mm. one of the first episodes or like the first plot points is that uh, on their quest to learn about the Philosopher's Stone, they go to uh, the city of Lior and they meet uh, Father Cornello, who is basically this uh, man who is indoctrinating the city of Lior in this religion called Litoism, which is the god of that town, uh, the sun god. And basically he's using alchemy to kind of create miracles and basically create sort of like a cult of followers so that he could brainwash them into doing his bidding. And Ed, who is a man of science, and Alphonse as well, who believe in alchemy and all of its uh, scientific endeavors, they confront Father Canelo and then they reveal him to be a fraud. If you look at those those episodes by themselves, it might seem like the show is kind of thesis or this idea that basically science is the only knowledge that people should seek when they are seeking the truth. But as you watch the series and as the series goes along, you just begin to discover that there are other forms of knowledge that Ed and Al kind of discover. Um you're looking at me like my brother's looking at me like he wants to add something. Yeah, but. you get the over extreme with Show Tucker and his chimera experiment. All right, exactly. <laughs> so that's when you get into scientism when you're you're using science to its extreme end and subverting it into over all other types of knowledge, where blindly following it as the only way to know anything about the world, and it ends up becoming its own extremism because it ends up using his own daughter and his own dog as a means to just fervor his goals. You end up losing the morality if if you just end up following science without any sort of guiding ethical principle. As Catholics, we're both in, right? Faith and reason. Um, I do find, yeah, the theme, the, the almost atheistic theme from the, from the, from the arc of Lior um, was disturbing. And that's but the first one. Really, I know. It's like one of the first few things. Yeah. Um, and really like, you know, don't put your faith in gods, that kind of thing. Um, but as Catholics, we see that middle road where we take both. We, we, they're kind of like, uni- again, uh, St. John Paul II writes in, um, I think it's Fides et Ratio, that faith and reason are like two wings upon which the human spirit rises to a greater contemplation of truth. You need one to purify the other one of its failings, of its faults. You can't fully go with one, because if you go full-on fideism, full-on faith, you can get very superstitious. Uh, And you go on full-on reason, like scientism, as you said, the morality kind of gets lost, because science cannot tell you what you should do. It tells you what you can do. But it doesn't tell you, like, like you know, combine your dog and your daughter into a monstrosity. <laughs> I could do that. Should I, you? No. Should I? Probably not. Let's ask the morality teacher, Meg. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think that's a beautiful thing about this show is that you follow this journey. They're kids. Like you watch them grow up and you follow their journey. And it's like on an extreme fantasy level of figuring out morality and ethics, what that means. And it starts off with this really grave um, matter, this this taboo that they that they they did. That's what their show starts off. Um, but you find how they figure out their own morality, how they find where the idea of faith comes in, whether that's like faith in your friends, your community, your teammates um, in this journey. Um, and then this where this idea of like relationships comes in and like how that's helpful in the choices you make. Um, and then also with all of that, the science, right? They start off being purely science. And then they realize the balance that they need to create on this journey, right? Even though it was, it seems that their their goal has always been the Philosopher's Stone and gaining their bodies back, the real gift that they gained was this knowledge, this balance in their life of, of, of morality, of, of 
of friendships and love and you know all the good stuff with with the sciencey stuff which ends up not really being important i also think it's worth noting like it's also like not even just like the battle between faith and science but like i also think it's interesting that the show kind of explores like the idea that uh single-mindedness in even culture is like something that limits us when it comes to our seek of knowledge and seek of truth uh one of the plot points of the story is that Ed and Alphonse learn that the uh, alchemy powered in a, a mistress, the power source that of their alchemy is actually like the energy of the tectonic plates. And this is something that is cultivated by the antagonist's father by like drilling holes underneath, like drilling tunnels underneath the country of Amestris. And because he basically, the, the big reveal is that he basically wants to sacrifice an entire country so that his he own can, country, his own country that he builds to use the power from those philosopher's stones or stone or whatever it makes uh, so that he could basically become a godlike figure so that he could basically have all the power in the world. And then they learned like, oh, the power, the thing that's powering their alchemy in their country is immoral. So they think, okay, so how can we perform alchemy by not doing it the way that we do it in our country? So they seek to the east and then, then they meet uh, people from the country of Xing or Zing or I don't Xing, know how it's pronounced. Yeah. Xing, Xing. Wallacanth. How do you pronounce that word? <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, like they meet uh, and basically that country, it's interesting because to me, Amestris is kind of based on uh, Germany. Pre-World War II, pre-World War II, post-World War II, Germany. One of those two. Just like, <laughs> pre, I think it's free. Just right. Either way, you're going to get in trouble. But, but yeah, you know. Xing is based on Asian countries like China and Japan and stuff. And so basically they learn from the people of Xing a new form of alchemy called alkahestry, which channels the power of qi or qi, like the living forces within every kind of being. So it's just interesting how the show kind of explores different cultures and different forms of knowledge, which is something that I feel like we could take to our own world is the idea that we should learn about other cultures, learn about other religions, because it helps form our knowledge and our way of truth. And like their their use for alchemy and alkahistory are different, right? It's the same thing, but in uh, Xing, they use it for medicinal purposes. They use it for healing. Right. And then in uh, a mistress, a mistress, a mistress, yeah. it's for military. Right. And so it's interesting because the two, uh, like the prince and the princess that are coming from Xing. They, they have these purposes of, of learning alchemy um, on a, like a military level, learning alchemy and, and finding philosopher's stone for immortality um, for these, I guess you can say somewhat selfish things more on the offense level and then you see see al and ed who are who are really interested in these like this medicinal side of of alchemy which is alchemy. let's go back to god in this universe or their conception of god they call him truth whenever one does the the taboo of human transmutation um they first use a human transmutation circle they do all that stuff um and then they later don't have to use a circle, right? Weirdly enough, they can clap their hands together and they form a circle with their arms. And and one of the characters weirdly or interestingly enough sees it like, oh, it's like the traditional way position for prayer. Um, they Because they all encounter God, the truth. And truth is kind of vindictive. Like truth is like, oh, hello. Um, and he gives like a, an appropriate punishment, as Father would say. Like Ed, um, he lost his leg upon which to stand on, and then he lost his brother, his whole brother. And then he he transmutes again to bind his brother's soul to the armor, and he sacrifices his arm for that because his brother's like his arm. You know, their master Izumi Curtis, she wants the child back. She loses the ability to have her children. Like her her, her reproductive organs were taken away. Um, God here is, is pretty much kind of what we would call consequence. 
the natural flow of things, a system here. We don't really see much of a thing of a personal relationship with truth in this. I mean, do we? No, do we see he, that? He's, he's all about business. <laughs> you give me what I want. He's like, hey, yo, what's up, truth? I just, I'm just coming to your doors real quick. Just wanted to see what's up. Sounds like a mafia boss. <laughs> Let's say goodbye to your eyes. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, I, and I think with with that, like. When we look at the idea of consequence and immortality and all these huge last things as Catholics, um, what kind of differences can we tease with that? But there are also, weirdly enough, similarities. What, what, do, we, what do we see there? I think their choice of portraying truth and portraying God as truth like goes with the principle of alchemy that they that they're teaching that like all is one and one is all that and, and the equivalent exchange principle that goes within that where everything is, is, it's the circle of life. Like every action you have as a reaction, it, it causes something to happen to another thing, which causes something to happen to another thing, which causes something to happen to you. And so like truth is just like the personification of that principle of like all is one and one is all. And so the consequences truth gives, I don't think truth gives. Like I think truth points out that that's just part of this, the circle, the cycle. You make a choice and eventually it gets back to you. Um, and, and you have to pay for it, right? And it ends up quite fittingly being the case with Ed at the end, where he realizes that the only way to be able to get his brother out of the gate is to give up the gate itself. Well, brother's body. Soul, brother's... Soul's on the armor. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. The only way to get his brother's body back and put his soul back into his body is to give up his ability to control the cosmos, to, to be able to manipulate the cosmos through alchemy. And in that, he accepts his place in the order of equivalent and exchange and how the world works personified in truth. And in that way, he ends up earning the respect of truth to be able to bring his brother out. I think it's interesting. I don't know if this is answering the question, but I'm just really responding to what you're saying. But like, I don't know. It's interesting because I sort of see it as like, okay, we talk about like the Philosopher's Stone and you know how state alchemists are like the scientists of this universe, right? But I feel like in a way, also the alchemists are also the the philosophers of this universe because they're also seeking truth and seeking understanding and knowledge but in a way because of their confrontations with truth or even without their confrontations with truth like non-main character <laughs> alchemists but like the idea that by seeking more knowledge in alchemy they are becoming more like god and that's like the extreme level of what father is trying to do the more alchemy i understand and the more i use alchemy the more godlike i become and it's interesting to me because like Ed's whole, the end of Ed's character arc is he gives up the ability to perform alchemy so that he could get uh, Alphonse back. And there's this idea like he's giving up the seeking to be God or seeking to understand what God is in order to get Alphonse back. It's like this, like this recognition that I am human and I am not God. So I'm giving up what makes me powerful or what makes me, and we're not really what gives, makes me power. Sorry. Let me backtrack. Not giving up what makes him powerful, but making recognizing the most powerful thing to him is being human and being exactly what he is, not God. I think that kind of goes with um, the Philosopher's Stone is a common trope in a variety of literature, really. Uh, Meg, I know you did like a, a project on that uh, for a grad school class. Um, just wondering if you could give, give a comment on the worthiness of using the Philosopher's Stone? Well, from like a storytelling point point of view, so this is grad school children. You you take a class on comics, sci-fi, fantasy, and religion, and that's the class that I'm in right now. Um, and so I did a presentation on Full Metal Alchemist and like the use of the Philosopher's Stone in storytelling, but also the, like the religious aspect of like consequence and immortality. And so looking at Philosopher's Stone as this MacGuffin, this this um, storytelling trope, this this object that like it could be anything else, but this object that everyone seems to want and like seek and like go after. And so from a storytelling point of view, uh, Philosopher's Stone is great because it's just like a catch all. It's like, oh, this 
can save your life and this could bring back bodies and this could this could make you immortal and this can bring back your mother so like the dragon balls yeah it's like the fountain of youth or the dragon balls right you mean to tell me that a philosopher's stone is not a red jolly rancher it's not i thought it was like a like the rubitussin pills or like a (laughs) continue um it could be a uh what do you call it a What's the, never mind. Not gonna say. Um, We're deep in the woods, everybody. We're really deep in the woods. <laughs> I was gonna say Turkish delight, but <laughs> Narnia. Are we just gonna bring in all of them? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so so the philosopher's stone. The the big thing is like it's this it's this item that takes away the idea of consequence. It's this it's this object that takes away the ultimate consequence of death. Like it's it's a relevant thing to anyone reading the story. Everyone's had that point where they've wanted something that this philosopher's stone can give, right? And so and it's also like a good plot point in terms of of morality because when it really comes down to it, what no matter what religion, no matter what spirituality you are, there's always a conversation about like what what human life means to people. Like death, life, the eschatology, all those things, no matter what faith you are, that's a conversation that that piques interest, right? And I think also one thing that comes up with those things is that you are most worthy to use the stone when you don't want to use the stone. And so, like, we see that, and you, you brought that up when you were talking about that, Matt, with, like, you know what? I'm going to give up what makes me godlike. And you see in the scene, the truth is dumbfounded. He's like, what? You, you, you beat me. You finally beat me. He, like, he looked like they don't really put a lot of features on his face, just this mouth. It's kind of freakish. Yeah. But he has like it's, a, it's like a crouching body, the bald yeah. body, and then a mouth. Like. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Yeah. But he, he has like, he has a weird, for lack of a better word, he has a dumbfounded look, a surprised look. And he starts laughing. Truth starts laughing. He's like, you've beat me. You finally beat me. Take it all. Um, and so he gets back his brother's body. And um, but that humility, right? Humility can conquer all kinds of things. And so he beats out, weirdly enough, in a sense, he beats out that his shortness kind of, right? He's always striving for higher. And now he's like, I, I'm okay with being low. I'm okay with being short. And God's finally like, all right. Here's your brother's body. <laughs> Apparently, Truth then decides, you know what? We're going to make you taller after. <laughs> so he becomes taller like, a couple years later oh. when he proposes. Oh. <laughs> That's all he needed to do. Give up the alchemy. and he... <laughs> It was weighing upon his shoulders. But yeah, I think you touched upon something that's really like one of the things that I one of the favorite aspects I have for the show is like the the few times that the uh, Elric brothers use a Philosopher's Stone. It's uh, with the recognition of the people that are used to make it up. And I think that speaks uh, to kind of like the pro-life themes that Meg was talking about earlier and also just like speaks to our faith. The idea of recognizing one another and that each and every one of us is uniquely made and has something to offer in this world. And that's the basis of uh, Catholic social teaching of, of of social justice through the Catholic lens is is human dignity, common good, like the dignity of every individual person. Like that's the basis of of moral teachings within the Catholic Church. And that dignity, you know, that that comes from God and um, their father, um, the actual father of the Elric brothers, Van Hohenheim. He. Well, God, there's so many spoilers here. Um, he also is filled with philosopher's stones, so he's filled with souls. But the difference with him and Father, Father just uses their power. He actually conversed with almost all 500,000 of them, made relationships with them, and they willingly give their power. And so he's actually a lot stronger than he seems. Um, in fact, they get to a point where the philosopher's stones, he can like, they can act of their own will, yeah. even if he was knocked out. Because he treats them like people, because they are people. Um, so wow, what a so many layers, guys! So good, it's just so good. Just watch the show. <laughs> I think we need like we need one of those like bells in mass whenever there's a spoiler alert. Just like 
like have like a bell or like have Ian going spoilers. <laughs> that's a drop. That's gonna happen. Three quarters of this would be spoilers. What I also love is that conversely, that's what becomes father's undoing is that he doesn't realize that each of the souls that power his philosopher's stone is human and his undoing is because they basically turn against him and then they limit his power because they they become self-aware of their will and uh, i find that really interesting yeah. it's actually really freakish <laughs> when it happens it's really quite interesting again just go find it it's on netflix guys it's on hulu it's um, all on netflix watch we're not sponsored it. by any of them but you know uh, are we day. even allowed to say that are we gonna- oh god uh, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, have to look at, we'll have to look to our legal department over here. Um, Google? This is where we go to the part where it's like, we're experiencing technical difficulties. Circling back to the homunculi, you know, we almost went a whole podcast without doing our special question, but does it have a soul? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, does it have a soul? Um, we have a quick answer for that for the homunculi. Anyone? Anyone have the answer? Tons, tons of souls. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have, they have five hundred thousand. They souls. don't have a soul. They have five hundred thousand souls. They have hella souls. Like, does it have a soul? Five hundred and thirty-six thousand three hundred and twenty-nine souls. Five hundred thirty-six thousand three hundred twenty-nine <laughs> souls. Yeah, it's it's it is insane. Um, um, but also like so on top of like each philosopher's stone, the homunculi, thats their core—is a philosopher's stone. On top of that, having like five thousand blah 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 souls. Um, five hundred six thousand thousand whatever. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> 25,600. So on top of the homunculi <laughs> having like 5,000 whatever souls, there is that part of uh, season three where greed enters Ling's body. And so like Ling's Ling's soul is kind of like takes precedent, right? Like it, it, it comes out every once in a while, more so than the other souls that are already within the core of that philosopher's stone. So like, how does that work? <laughs> It's like extreme like, schizophrenia. <laughs> Multiple personality. Because these like, are actually, but yeah. Like, like, clearly, more, like Ling's soul is like takes precedent because that's Ling's body. And then it's like, there's all these other souls that are within the core of greed. Well, for first Catholics, a soul is one-to-one to a, to a body. So <laughs> we don't, we don't have a thing for that. So that's not the, that's not very Catholic. But I guess if I the were to guess, the aren't very Catholic either. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> They're like the opposite. They're pure well, yeah. sin. <laughs> the homunculi are basically father took the seven deadly sins out of himself because they were they were limiting him from being this godlike figure. So like they exist because it's just like oh like you get a philosopher's stone you get a philosopher's stone <laughs> because you know you're well, the imperfect parts it, of me but I'm gonna use you you're like you're useful still you're my minions yeah. my children <laughs> how in, how how wonderful would that be to be able to just pluck out your worst vices and just be like realize like, oh I don't need you anymore but then it becomes a living thing you're like oh god <laughs> oh, it, oh no oh, it, oh gosh and then it, and then it obeys you though it calls you like mother or calls you father and you're like this is a strange family I've created. <laughs> Like of all my I, inner I wouldn't demons. use it for much. I'd be like, "Hey, Les, can you can you get me a milkshake? Because I know gluttony will just eat it." But it's <laughs> like, the pure I concentration use it for much. of <laughs> that sin. So it's like you have to speak to those sins in order to be able to to do the stuff you want. So how? Do so you hey, do Les, can you get me a milkshake? And then you could flirt with the guy at the counter. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're they're artificial Thanks. humans, so like. Okay, barring the philosopher's stone that powers them, they they don't have a soul. They're just a a vessel or like a shadow, a husk of yeah. a person. We, which is very different from when we I remember when we had the the artificial intelligence episode, and we talked about the parallel with artificial insemination. And uh, you know, when you do that, so you're forcing God's hand. He makes a soul for this living being, because all living beings have souls. Um, so again, yeah, it's just weird to kind of wrap your mind around all these ways that we can do this. I think really when it comes down to it, when it comes to the seven 
uh, Deadly Sins. It's just so ironic the way that they're portrayed. Some of them are just really, really uh, obvious. Like, Gluttony is just this big fat guy um, who, constantly, who constantly says, like, can I eat him? <laughs> it's like, what can no, I eat him? No. <laughs> when can I like, eat him? <laughs> um, Lust is this, you know, buxom woman, uh, you know, deep, deep, sultry voice. Wrath is this old man with swords. <laughs> like, um, it, it's, it's all... It's um, Pride is this punk ass. I don't know kid. where I'm going with this. <laughs> I have, I don't know where you're going Pride either. Is a punk ass but kid. I think it's worth <laughs> noting that Gluttony at least is a little bit. Deep. I think people seem to forget that Gluttony was a failed portal to the gate of truth. So whenever he eats, it just goes to this like nether dimension. <laughs> but he, which which is interesting. How our sins are failed ways to try to find truth. Oh. <laughs> Snap, snap, snap. Spoilers to your life, son. Anyway. <laughs> Say that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wherever you go, none of these will satisfy you. None of them. That's that's what a friend of mine told me at a food truck gathering. <laughs> anyway. I was like, really, girl? Were we supposed to? I'm not I was, I was supposed to go that deep? Anyway. I think I think it's just about that time, guys. <laughs> I want to listen on a light note. Once again, I want to just thank you guys for discussing one of my favorite animes, one of these fantastic just commentary on all kinds of Western philosophy, um, self-improvement, getting better. I know it's become kind of a, a cliche, like improving and becoming the best version of yourself, always moving forward. Ministry, check them out. Um, but like... I, I just want to thank you. I want to appreciate you guys for doing this. Uh, my first time hosting too, so be in the comments if you'd like to just talk about if you've watched the series, say your favorite moments, um, what other themes you'd like to see. And it was just this was a great ride, guys. I appreciate it. I'm thankful. Uh, I'm Ian. I'm Meg. Mark. I'm Matt. Y'all have a good night now. God bless. Truly Universal is a production of Urban Picks, All Things to All. Theme song by Demi Guevara. Audio production by Ethan Coe. Outro song by Chris Kabiles. You can find all of our content on our website, www.urbanpicks.com slash trulyuniversal. Please like and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to contact us, send us an email at trulyuniversal at urbanpicks.com. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next time.